Thank you, choir. That was great. Um, I caught a line in there that talked about the mystery of Calvary, and I'm like, kudos. That is the sermon today. Good job. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning again, we thank you that you sent Jesus to the world and that through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he has become the king and only head of his church, our Messiah. And so, God, we thank you for him, and we ask that you would gift us with your spirit so that in reading his word this morning, we may come to a better understanding as best as we can to appreciate that mystery of him dying and rising and ascending to heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning is Descent into Hell Week, which doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but you know what's even worse? Then descend into hell week you could be rochester and get the same sermon on descend into hell and also have it work out where this is the sunday where we have to install new elders on consistory oh. so just the optics of that right it's instant install anyway so here we go uh, we are going to read from the new testament book of hebrews chapter 2 if you'd like to follow along it is on page 219 of your new testament hebrews chapter 2 starting at verse 14. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters, and in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, and he is able to help those who are being tested. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so as we get into the study of the Apostles' Creed and the line on descend into hell, the one thing I want to make sure that you go home remembering is, uh, yet again, we hear this every time we do communion, but this is the focus today. When I say the communion prayer, together we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Do you remember what the next line is that you join me in on? No? Together we proclaim the mystery of the faith, and then all together we say, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. This is a divine mystery. And you know, there are two kinds of mysteries that we can embrace in this world. The kind is like the Sunday morning paper with your crossword, and it's a puzzle that can be solved. And then there are mysteries that are mysteries. They do not have an answer that we could possibly solve. Maybe there is an answer to them, but we can't perceive them. And so, down through the ages, Christians have recognized that in the Apostles' Creed, when we get past Jesus' humanity and onto the work of his death and resurrection, that we can testify to the facts. That does not mean we always understand what happened there. It's a mystery. We still proclaim it because we know it happened, but yet we're not sure what it means. So hold on to that. Whatever else you hear this morning, we proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. 
So we get to that part of the Apostles' Creed that we move beyond just saying Jesus is a human, and we get into what he actually did that is brings salvation to us, and it starts with descent into hell. As Christians, when we stand and say that together, it's a mystery. And hopefully by now what you picked up in this seri- seri- series is I hold those mysteries of these things in an inclusive way. We're not doing it to define who is in and who is out. Do it with humility because there's a mystery, a lot of things we don't know. And then also generosity is the one I would add this morning. We need generosity in the way we deal with descent into hell because there's a lot we don't know and a lot of answers to people trying to figure it out. But remember this about descent into hell, that our own tradition, starting with John Calvin, John Calvin acknowledged that in the Apostles' Creed that he would stand and say that confession, and yet there is nothing in the Bible, nothing, where it says that Jesus descended into hell after he died. Nothing. And he pointed that out. He didn't say reject the Apostles' Creed, but he pointed that out. And so as we get going this morning, that is a question for you to think about is how do we how did they get there in the early church to say he descended into hell? So to do that, to answer that question, we're going to talk again about progressive revelation. All these ideas from these last few weeks are starting to come together, but the idea of progressive revelation is this. God condescends in a good way, the way we talk to children because they can't handle it yet. There's a lot they can't manage. God talks to us like that, and through history, God has revealed certain things at certain times. So, in the beginning of Scripture, we get not a picture of hell, but we get, well, we get Genesis 1. We get that glorious, beautiful, God-bringing-order-out-of-chaos picture of God, you know, heaven and earth, sea and land. He makes it all, creates it all in Genesis 1. Think of that as God starting off the story of salvation the way Lion King does. You've seen the Lion King, right? Mufasa brings Simba up to that pride rock, and you get this swelling music that's glorious and beautiful, and they all come to worship the new baby king. In some ways, Genesis 1 is like that. The story hasn't really begun, begun, but you are getting a picture of the world you're going to enter into. Genesis 1 is this almighty God who creates order out of chaos. The story really begins then, this, the revelation that begins with God is with Adam and Eve. So this first creation, what do they do? Uh, Eve talks to a snake, she eats a piece of fruit, they get thrown out of the garden, right? You got that story in your mind? That's really where the story begins because every story needs a problem to be solved. It needs a conflict. And so as we will get to descend into hell, but where God started, what we could handle first was God's Almighty created everything, and we messed up. Okay? We messed up. We wanted to be like God, and so we ate the fruit. Most of our pictures depict it as an apple, so we think it's an apple, but the word is fruit. And a lot of times we look at the snake and we go, oh, it's Satan, right? How many of you grew up in Sunday school and thought, oh, yeah, that's what the snake, no, 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 no. You read Genesis, what actually happens is that the woman, Eve, gets cursed. She gets cursed that there's going to be enmity between her and the snake. Later on, 
you can bring Satan back into it. But in that first revelation, what's going on is there's a God, and there's us, and something goes wrong. It's not Satan yet. There's no evil here. Not the way we think about it now. God starts with the story of God and us and the problem that exists in that. Okay? So that's the first thing that God reveals. Now, as time goes on, we will end up, and we just to get the picture of how this goes, do you remember the story where Jesus has gone across the sea and he meets a man that the Bible depicts as wild? He's out of control. He's been living out of control. He's not his right mind. And it turns out this, this man shows up and talks to Jesus, and he goes, I know you're God. Before you do anything else to me, cast me out. And it turns out the story we're in the middle of is Jesus is talking to a demon-possessed man. Right? And so uh, Jesus is talking to this demon-possessed man, and uh, Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, I'm Legion. And then Jesus casts out the demon into 2,000 pigs and sends them over a cliff to die. Clearly, by the time we get to this story, the story has changed. That revelation has changed. Jesus is in the middle of not just the problem of God and us, where the story begins, but the story has added onto itself demons and evil, and something that has to be conquered. It has happened. So what happened in between? How did we move from just a straight-up story about God and us and fixing that relationship to a story where that's still it, but now we have demons and evil and the rest of the stuff in the story? So this is the progressive revelation. This is how it has happened. As far as we can tell, the oldest text of the Bible that we have, the first stories that ever got told, the Hebrew people did not have a concept of an outside evil force. There was God, and God created stuff, including us. And that was a relationship that had to be fixed. Now, along the way, they had some other ideas that eventually would add to it. Uh, somebody asked me about the word Sheol. Yes, they had a word Sheol. It wasn't hell in our minds. See, for them, they had this word Sheol, and it was very much connected to the grave. What happens when somebody dies? They get put in the ground. So Sheol is this idea that when you get buried, you kind of go to some sort of underworld. But everyone goes there. Humans go there. And animals go there. Sheol is this place that nobody can escape from. There's no reward, there's no punishment, there's no good, there's no evil. God's in heaven, we end up in Sheol. And Sheol is just that. It becomes this place where, and, and this is why it was sort of you know, attached to death and their concept of death was, you can't talk, there's no light, there's no more communication with God, and there's no more God communicating with you. That's Sheol. It's not eternal punishment, it's just the consequences of death. And so much like the problem that Genesis gives us, which is God and us in a broken relationship, Sheol is the manifestation of that broken relationship. We are separated from God. We can't talk, we can't see, we can't interact with God or with each other. It's a very relational thing. No reward and punishment, just that. So that's Sheol. They have that word. 
They believed in that word. They had a word like Satan. That's a Hebrew word. But it wasn't an evil character. It comes from Job. Job is a very, very old text of the Bible. And in that story, Satan is not evil. Satan is some sort of character that interacts with God and talks with God and is the accuser who says, Job's really not as good as you think he is. It's not evil. We read that backwards. At the time, Satan just meant the accuser. But again, they had words like Sheol, they had Satan, they even had evil. Evil is a word that shows up in Genesis. Adam and Eve each taught, they said they, they had the knowledge of good and evil is what they were dealing with. But again, their concept of evil wasn't a personification somewhere outside them. Evil was you rejecting God. Does this make sense? There is not this outside third party in the story. It's you and God. Separation from God is Sheol. Uh, there, there's an accuser in this story that says that that relationship is broken and can't be fixed. There's an idea of evil, but you're the source of evil. That was the ancient Israelites. That's where they were coming from. And so what happened over time is they already had all that stuff in their sort of theological bag. They were using those words and thinking about those words. And then what happened in history was the exile. I can never underestimate for you how important this was. When the people, first Assyria destroyed the northern kingdoms, Babylon destroyed the south, the Jew, Judah, tribe of Judah ends up in Babylon as slaves. They become, they have this new name called Jews, as Judeans. They're Jews now. They start to interact, not just with the people around them from before, which was just Canaan, but they are now interacting with Eastern religions, Assyria, Babylon, Persia. And they came into the Israelites' life, or the Jewish people's life, with a whole bunch of their own philosophies and religions and ideas including yin and yang. Reality is a story of good and evil, the way we think about it. And there's a balancing act. They both are part of reality. You need a balancing act between both. They came in with their foreign ideas about gods, and that, that evil side of that balancing act is a character. And that character lives in a place that's below. They brought all that kind of religion and philosophy stuff to this, and the Israelites, or now the Jewish people, went, aha, aha, the next revelation. We always thought it was just about us and God. It turns out there is a third actor named the devil. And there is a, not just Sheol, but now there's a place of eternal punishment. And someday we still go to the grave, but this is the way, kind of the way, by the time it gets to the New Testament, that Paul would think about it, you die. Yes, you're in the grave. And there's either a resurrection from the dead or there's not. But do you see it progressed? These other cultures came into their lives. They discarded vast majorities of it, right? We don't know anything about Persian religion and Babylonian religion and Assyrian religion uh, that much. But they did adopt some of the ideas. And the idea in Christianity is that was God. God was working in all of it. That God took what was happening in these other cultures, and as they taught it then to the Jewish people, God was inspiring them to now get more. 
so we go from genesis which is just us and god and you get to jesus where it's us and god and evil some other outside actor that wants to hurt people you get the devil and you get angels and you get demons and you get this idea that in fact the devil has power over you can actually pick this up in Paul very clearly, because in Paul, he'll say, we are all slaves to sin. It was here in Hebrews, this idea that there's a devil and we've sold our souls to him. We are slaves to him now, and the devil will get his due. That was the context of the way people thought about the problem with them and God in Jesus's time. Yes, there's still us and God, but there's this third actor that we have sold our souls to. Someone's got to buy back our souls from the devil. Okay? Sorry to get clearer why they would go into this idea of descending to hell. We'll get there. But here's what matters. All through this progressive revelation, the next question I have is, so what does that matter to us now? It's a great history story. I hope you find it interesting. Um, it's worth finding interesting. But what does it matter as we confess the Apostles' Creed that this is all the stuff that happened over time through this culture and this life that we read about in the Bible? Why does it matter? Again, it comes down to proclaim the mystery of the faith, not always knowing everything that is happening or is true, but knowing that something is happening, and we stand and say it together, and we hold it gently, generously, inclusively, humbly. Down through time, people have come to this part of Jesus' story where he dies, and what we are handed very clearly is language that says stuff like, Jesus died for our sins. You ever figure out what that means? What does it have to do that a Palestinian Jew 2,000 years ago died on a cross? How does that that, what, is, what is this idea that that's your forgiveness of sin? Like, where's the connection? How do you explain that? The word in theology that does matter to us now, and I'm going to show it to you. I did this with the confirmation kids, so you get to know it too. Atonement. You know what that word means? It's in the word itself. At one meant. The state of being at one with God. Remember, the first problem Genesis told us was that we were separated from God. The problem of Sheol is that we're separated from God. Atonement is Jesus changing that. How do we become one with God again? And so people have searched the scriptures and tried to explain that kind of basic idea that Jesus died for our sins. So how, does that, how is that an atonement? How does that bring us back to God? You know where you hear it? Well, you can hear it in the Lord's Prayer, because in the Lord's Prayer we say, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Hebrews we read this morning that we owe the devil's devil our soul, and someone's got to buy it back. Or, another way of thinking about debt is that we owe God something, that we borrow life from God, and we got to pay God back for it. Give us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Is one way of thinking about atonement. We owe somebody something for our lives. Another way to think about it, and this is really what Hebrews is actually doing. You know, Hebrews is a New Testament book. 
it's trying to explain jesus on jewish terms right hebrews they're like here's everything that came before here's all the revelation before here's how it explains jesus and so another way of thinking about atonement is a, a substitute or a scapegoat you were an ancient Israelite and you wanted to go and worship God, you brought a sacrifice to the temple and you killed an animal. And the idea was that your sin transferred onto that animal. And so the big idea in that substitute picture is that uh, Jesus becomes our scapegoat. And by the way, this is why he had to be fully human and fully divine. Because to be human, he had to be, our, right? he had to be one of us to be good enough to be our scapegoat, to be the one we could transfer sin to. But if we wanted to end the sacrificial system where you have to keep sacrificing and keep sacrificing to deal with sin, then it had to be a perfect person, and that took God. Right? So substitute sort of makes sense of that fully human and fully divine thing and says, God, Jesus transferred, all our sin transfers on him. You can think of atonement as a drowning person. When someone's drowning, you know that you're not supposed to swim out to them to try and rescue them, right? Like, that's the last resort. Because a drowning person is panicking. And what they will, ha what will happen is if you swim out to somebody who is drowning, they are going to jump on you, and they're going to pull you down with them. You're supposed to use those life preservers and everything, throw that out to them and pull them in because they're panicking. And in their panic, they're going to do harm to you. So one idea of atonement is, you know, people are yelling Hosanna one part of the week, and by the end of the week, they're killing Jesus, but really what you got to picture is that they're drowning, and they are grabbing on, doing harm to Jesus to try and feel safe, to be saved. And the brilliant part is that Jesus is God, so he's not going to die even when he gets pulled under with us. That's another way, more modern way. Debt or substitution or satisfaction. Jesus, our God is both a God of uh, justice and mercy, and we can't separate one from the other. So God has to be both gracious and wrathful, punishing and forgiving. And the only way God can be both is through Jesus, not through us. All this stuff comes from the Bible somewhere. But if you ask a first century Jew who had come all the way through this and you see it in Hebrews and it kind of underscores what Paul says and Jesus does, if you would ask them what the story is of how Jesus died on the cross means something for us, they would have gone to the idea that there is a devil, that there is Satan, and there is a hell. It's a place of eternal punishment. And we're going there because we sold our souls to the devil. And unless somebody buys us back, we are going to end up there with Satan. And so, while it doesn't make it into the text, it was very clearly their idea that Jesus died on the cross and then spent three days in hell paying the devil off for us. And of course, he's perfect. He's God. So he doesn't have to stay there forever. He, he deals with it. It's paid for. And, and that means that when he rises again, he's victorious over the devil. 
The devil thought he won, Jesus won. Because the devil didn't realize he couldn't win at this game. That's the way they thought about coming back to God. They had been sold, they sold themselves to the devil, and now they had to be saved. The problem is still the problem in Genesis, in a way. It's still us and God, and how do we get back to that? But it deals with all that stuff that's built up, too. And so, yeah, descend into hell is never said anywhere in the Bible. But the ideas behind it, this particular idea of atonement, which now we call Christus Victor, meaning Christ victorious, or the chosen one who wins, that was what was to them at stake in the cross and why they said descend into hell. Jesus had to go and pay for our sins for three days and then rose again. Again, though, what's the one thing I want to make sure you go home with in all this history and all those atonement theories and all those ways? Proclaim the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That's the stuff we know. The rest of it is us searching after answers to explain it. There are good things in every one of those explanations that have come from Christian theology, including Christus Victor. There are many that are bad. We've never settled on one. You don't settle on one. There has to be an inclusive nature here to all the, these ideas that come in all these different forms from the Bible itself. None of them say they are right and the other ones are wrong. They are all part of it. But the reason... And I'm going to close with this. The reason that I personally like the fact that we don't do what John Calvin told us to do, which is say, descend into the dead, because he was, you know, he's like, that's in the Bible. He did die, so he descended to the death. But we stick with descend into hell, and we close with this. Two reasons. One is, I like the idea that we could honor all this. I know it may sound complicated, all the history and the words and then the theology and thousands of years. Every one of those people who ever worked on that, was ever inspired by God, who ever wrote this stuff down and lived in the midst of it, they're our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we will meet them again. It's a divine mystery what that's all going to look like, but we're going to be there with them. I think it's honoring to try and hold all of those perspectives together. That's one reason. But the other reason I want to make sure that we keep up with descend into hell and don't dismiss it is because of this. You know that song we sing in Christ Alone? It's a modern song, right? Let me read some of it to you. We sing this one all the time, but it goes like this. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Is you guys catching that? You've heard that one before? You recognize it a little bit? No? Come on, we sing it all the time. All right, all right, here's the second verse. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. You know what they just claimed in that song? A theory of atonement. The one about God being both just and merciful and the wrath of God had to be satisfied or there had to be a debt paid back to God 
for the justice that is in God. So the people who wrote this song, the story goes that in about 2013, uh, the Presbyterians wanted to put out their own hymnal, and they liked that song. It's very popular. So they wanted to include it, and they found a version of it in another hymnal uh, that had changed the words on that line. Instead of saying uh, the wrath of God was satisfied, it says, till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the Presbyterians went, oh, that's so much better. Because who wants to talk about hell? Who wants to talk about wrath? People aren't going to come to church if we keep talking about this stuff. And then the authors of the song said, we didn't know that they published it that way. We never gave permission for them to change it, and we don't give permission to you to change it. <laughs> Yes, I go, yeah, too, and here's why. Here's, here's the next verse. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. I love the fact that the writers did not just do one atonement theory in this song. They tried to get all of them in there. There is Christ as victor. There is debt being paid. There is curses being lifted off of us that we owe to the devil. There is satisfaction of God. I'm like, amen that you kept them all in there. But here's really what it gets down to, because then as they go through that, right, it comes back to what does this mean in our lives? Here's the final verse. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand. Here's why that matters. All those atonement theories, we honor the past, but also here's what I've come to recognize as a minister. Boy, do we need Christ to be victorious. And I don't mean that just we just like the idea that that's appealing to us, that he's our superhero. I mean, we need it. And what I mean by that is almost everyone goes out into the world and goes, yeah, there's something called evil. Evil. I don't know what it is, but yeah, this world is filled with evil. I get that. There's something wrong. There's something broken. Right? Everybody's sort of aware of, of something like that. They're... And you know what? As Christians, you can do that too. You can go, yeah, there's evil in the world. Everybody panic! There's the devil. He's scary. He's horrible, right? And we live into the fear of our own theology, fear, the fear of our own story. Mostly because we don't actually understand it, it actually makes a bigger panic in people. And instead, what really matters when we say Christ is victorious and why you need Christ to be victorious is so that you can change the story of be afraid, everybody panic, there's evil in the world, oh, we're in so much danger, and turn it into no power of hell. No scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. The way you live your life changes when Christ is victorious. The way you interact with the world changes when you are victorious. The whole world will change when Christians act like they are victorious and not when they act like they have to be afraid of evil. 
I stand up for a descent into hell because I want you to never forget that Christ is victorious and not a scheme of hell, excuse me, not nothing from hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. You're safe. Fear not. Go, be witness, share this lovingly, graciously, and do not be afraid. Yes, God has told us a story that includes the devil and hell and all those other things. The real story always is us and God and Christ has made a way. Stop being afraid. This morning I was at the coffee shop, or excuse me, not the coffee shop, the gas station, I got coffee, and I went to the register, and the guy who runs the place there in Stone Ridge was holding a bottle of hand sanitizer. And he said to me, this is the last one. I'm like, yeah? And he goes, yep. I got 100 in yesterday, and this is the last one. I just ordered 120 more. And I drove from the gas station back, and I thought about that. I'm like, is the world panicking? Or are they doing exactly what I just suggested? Because we can panic and go, be afraid, danger, oh no, all this horrible stuff's happening. And all we're going to do is add to the panic. Or we can be the kind of people that go, it's all nonsense, don't worry about it at all. Which may make you feel better, but it's still not going to help anybody who's panicking. And then what happens is if you go, all right, the fear is there, the danger is real, let's, let's understand it, and then walk through it as people who know that they don't have to be afraid of anything. All right, now we can be helped and we can help others. Do you get the difference? We have to stand up. We need Christ to be victorious because people recognize that there is evil in the world. They get that. And we can, we can panic with them, we can, oh, no, it's not. No, that's real. No, that's real. Take wrath out of the song. Or we can go, yeah. And where does the story end? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. That is what the ending is, because Christ is victorious. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your word, and thank you for all the ways that you've tried to help us understand the work that you have dug in Christ. Help us to continue to proclaim that mystery, respect that mystery, but also make sure that it means what it's supposed to mean. That we know, that we are assured, that we walk through this life as your people with the testimony that says, there is no power of hell and no scheme of man that will ever pluck us from your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's stand and sing our next hymn, Give Thanks. It's an insert in your bulletin.